Let us now turn to God's Word for our instruction. We turn to the Epistle to the Hebrews and the chapter 1. The Epistle to the Hebrews, the Epistle of Paul, the Apostle to the Hebrews, chapter 1. This is God's holy, infallible, inerrant, and sacred Word. The Lord give us ears to hear and hearts to truly receive His Word. God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by an inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, And let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels he saith, Who maketh his spirits, his angels' spirits, and his ministers a flame of fire. But unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are thy works, are the works of thine hands. They shall perish but thou remainest, and they all shall wax old as doth a garment, and as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. But to which of the angels said he at any time, Sit on my right hand, until I make thine enemies thy footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits? sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation. Amen. So reads God's holy and sacred word, and may the Lord be pleased to add his blessing to that public reading of his precious word, and may the Lord give us an understanding later as we come to his word. Let us pray. Well, dear friends, I turn your prayerful attention once again to the words that I read to you in your hearing there in the epistle of the Apostle Paul to the Hebrews. This, of course, once again is the Spirit-inspired word. Paul, the Apostle, is the inspired writer, and he is writing to, I remind you, the Hebrew Jewish Christians who were being greatly persecuted for their faith. It's always vital and I, perhaps you become very weary of me saying that this is the inspired Word of God, but it is easy when we read that it is an epistle. It's easy to forget 
And sometimes we may think that this is simply the words of men, but the Holy Spirit is giving these things. These are wonderful, tremendous, divine truths concerning the Son of God. These are not the thoughts of men, but these are truths given by the Holy Spirit concerning the great things of the Lord Jesus Christ. The time now is somewhere around 64, 66 AD. And as I said, many of these Hebrew Christians, the Jews, are being tempted to go back from following Christ and to go back to the way of the Old Testament, the way simply of the law and not going in the way of the gospel. Many of them are being persecuted by their own people, by the Jews. There's severe persecution coming from the Jews. And certainly Paul, the apostle, was one of them at once, Saul of Tarsus. But also persecution is coming from Rome itself. And we have demonstrated, we have gone to reasonable lengths to show that the apostle Paul here is the inspired writer. And it follows that it is written to the Hebrews. In fact, it is titled this, isn't it? The epistle to the Hebrews. And we have seen going through various sections in the introduction that these things address the Hebrew people, people of the tabernacle, people of the types and shadows, those um, ceremonies that were undertaken in the Old Testament, all those things pointing to the fulfillment, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, these people, by the grace of God, have come to know that Christ is the promised Messiah, which Micah speaks of which Isaiah speaks of, all of the prophets speak of the Lord Jesus Christ, the messenger of the covenant, the glorious one whom the Old Testament prophets pointed to. There we see it in the verse 1, God who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. Yes, God did. He spoke to the fathers by the prophets, but in these last days... He speaks in no less a person than his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is very God. Now, this is the glorious one of Psalm 2. Remember, as we read also in Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit thou at my right hand. This is the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the end of the law for righteousness, Romans 10. They are not to go back to the things of the law, but they are to believe upon Christ, who Jeremiah spoke about, who is the Lord, who is to come, the Lord, our righteousness. Now, you notice here, perhaps I haven't mentioned, it it says there, God in these last days, verse 2, hath spoken by his Son. The word there, last, is the word eschatos. It's where we get the word eschatology from, which means end time. These are the last days. There is one great final epoch that is to come. There is one great climactic event that is to take place in time and space and history in these last times. And we are in the last times. We're waiting for that one event. And what is that? It is the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul himself said, we are in the last times. Now we don't know when the last time is. We don't know when the last day is. We have no idea. We know that from Scripture it shall come as a thief in the night. However now, 
He has spoken last of all by his Son, and he has sealed up prophecy in all Scripture. The book of the Revelation is the last book of the New Testament, and that was completed somewhere around 98 AD, and Christ has the last word there, and that was confirmed by Daniel the prophet that Christ should seal up Scripture. And now we are waiting for that final day of Christ to come in these last times. Well, many well-meaning believers have said that Christ is coming in such and such a year. Many well-believing people, and I believe even, even Christians have said it, but we cannot know the time, the day. It shall come, as we note in 1 Thessalonians 5, 2, as a thief in the night, he says, for yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. Did the Lord Jesus Christ say we'd be able to discern the day that he comes? He says, no. He says in Matthew twenty four thirty six, but of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Peter himself said the same thing, didn't he? When he said, but of that day of the Lord, it will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens shall pass away and shall melt with fervent heat. We won't know the day. We've been waiting for millennia. Many in Paul's day, as he wrote to the Thessalonians, that's one of the reasons why he had to write that epistle. Many had said that the Lord had already come. But he said, you know, we don't know the day. We don't know that hour that the Savior is coming. We have not a clue, but we need to be ready. Now, remember last time in the verse 2, we considered firstly the glory of Christ in eternity. Verse 2, God hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. And we emphasized, uh, or we brought out the fact that this is really emphasizing his sonship. It has to do with the, the, the nature of his person. It's not an office. It's, uh, it's who he is. God has in these last days spoken by his Son. I reminded you of that occasion where the Lord Jesus Christ referred to himself before the Jews as the Son of God. In John 5, and he said this, Jesus answered them, My Father worketh hitherto, and I work. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. He was claiming to be the Son of God. And so, This here, as we remind ourselves last time, is a very vital thing for these Jews because many of them couldn't get to grips with this fact that Jesus Christ walking before them was the Son of God. And that is the glory that he had from all eternity. Sonship requires his identity. He is of the same nature of God. And that was the emphasis I sought to try to make before you. It's not so much a role or a function. This has nothing to do with his office, but who he is eternally, the only begotten of the Father, very God, proceeding eternally from the bosom of the Father, as we saw in John chapter 1, who is in the bosom of the Father, says John, present tense, active, continuous, even now in the bosom of the Father, That's who he is. 
but also as the Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father. Both Son and Spirit both eternally proceed from the Father. Well, he is very God, eternally. So we saw the glory of his personhood. And then secondly, we saw the glory of his appointment as heir of all things. We notice there, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. Of course, as he proceeds from the Father, the Father is in him, and he is in the Father. He is very God, and being the one who made the worlds is creator. That's the very one who walked this earth. And as he made the worlds, that's a divine work, isn't it? And it shows that he is indeed God the Son, that he has absolute power over all created matter, over the whole universe. It's a wonderful thing as he came into this world. He manifested the name of the Father. Thy name have I manifested to those that thou hast given me. But think of it, when he made the world, he flooded the world with his glory. The glory of God. Because the Psalm 19 tells us that the heavens and the earth declare the glory of God. When he made it, he exhibited his glory and his power. In fact, the Apostle Paul tells us, doesn't he, in Romans chapter 1, as Christ has made the world, we read there, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. God's glory has been set forth in all the earth. The heavens and the earth declare the glory of God. Christ's glory is seen in the creation of this world. He who is creator, he showed something of the glory of God in creation. And even as we look out into the great skies and see the heaven of heavens there, of course, we cannot see the third heaven, but we can look out into the azure vault and see all these great things that he has made, and they declare his glory. But as he came into this world, he manifested the name of the Father. What is the name of the Father? It is his character. The very person, the character of God, he showed forth in time, indeed, as heir of things, not only as creator, but as heir of these things. Even now as we look at this world, he will make a new heavens and a new earth. He will create all things new, just like many of us are born again. He hasn't destroyed us, but he will make all things new. Behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. But I want you to notice in the verse 3 there, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. Christ was the express image of the Father, the fullness of the Godhead dwelt in him bodily, the apostle tells us. And also, as we thought a moment ago, as he lived his life, his whole life indeed, manifested the name of the Father. I have manifested thy name. And he came and he showed that he is indeed God, was manifest in the flesh. That's what the apostle says. 
And men beheld his glory there also upon the mount, but also there was a voice that came from heaven twice. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. This is the glory of our Creator, and he is glorious. But think of it. He came and he showed Adam and Eve his glory in the garden. It was he that walked with them in the cool of the day, we read. As they walked, as they talked with God. God was there. God the Son. Showing his glory. But then there was the fall, wasn't there? That awful day that Adam sinned. But even after the fall, and I want you to notice this. As we continue now to look at the verse 3 and we're moving on to the verse 4 this evening. It was, we know this, it was decreed from all eternity, wasn't it, that he should show the riches of the glory of God's grace, as we read in Ephesians chapter 1, don't we? God determined that Christ, that through Christ, he would show the glory of his grace. Now notice, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power when he himself had purged Notice our sins. As he was dying there upon the cross, my friends, he was upholding the world. The creator of the universe was upholding all things when he by himself purged our sins. He who made all things came and has even from the time that Adam and Eve sinned in the garden... He has upheld this sinful world that has spiraled into its great sin. He has been upholding it by the power of his word. Who is the word? Christ is the word. And then what did he do when he by himself purged our sins? It's a tremendous thing, isn't it? The very one who was sustaining the universe was at the same time upholding all things and then dying for our sins upon the cross at Calvary. It's amazing his power, isn't it, when we consider his love, his greatness, who he is. He purged our sins, that is, he took away the offense of our sin and he he washed, as it were, our sins away. He took away the offense of our sins. So that now there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8 begins with no condemnation and it ends with no separation. Who shall separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus? Nothing. If God be for us, who can be against us? Why did he do this? So that he would deliver us from the consequences of sin and from the law's righteous, just requirement against sin. And so having died then for us, what did he do? He he was raised again, notice, and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What a work Christ has done in not only making the world and upholding it, but sustaining it while he's dying for us. And then now he has gone as the great high priest and is seated at the right hand of the majesty of God on high, who has gone through the veil. This glorious Lord Jesus, why did he do this? 
so that one day he would indeed have a great company of people which no man can number. As John looks there in Revelation 14 and also in Revelation 7, a number which no man can number, and all to the praise of the glory of God's grace. This is the riches. These are the riches that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now it would be manifest in time that he would receive all these things as heir. He is heir to all things as we have read here. Heir even to a fallen universe. But he will make a new heavens and a new earth. He made the worlds, but he will be heir even through his own purchase at Calvary. And all of this, you see, shows forth the grace of God and the power of God and the wisdom of God. This is the glory of his office, friends, that he is Lord of all and that one day he will claim this inheritance. It is a position that he will hold forever and forever and so that you and I might glorify him in heaven and we might be employed for the praise of his name not just now, but for all time and all eternity, that we might be as the angels above that sing his praise, that sing to him now, glory be to the Lamb that was slain. They marvel as they look at us, transformed, changed beings now. We marvel at the celestial beings of angels and we, we marvel at what it must be like to see an angel. But I think that they must marvel at a changed heart and a changed mind. The power of God in salvation, the quickening of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Now this evening I want us to move on to the verse 4 and to consider Christ's superiority over the angels. By the Spirit the Apostle writes, being made so much better than the angels as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Of course, that's quoting from Psalm 2. He's been made better, much better than the angels. Now, you may be wondering why the apostle by the Spirit here is introducing the subject of angels. What, why is this the case? Well, Firstly, let's remind ourselves here that what the Apostle is doing is he is entreating, indeed endearing, I should say, Christ to the Jews here. He's setting Christ forth. He, he's better than the, the highest of the celestial beings, higher than Gabriel, the archangel, higher than all the angels. He is the greatest and the fairest of all. He is turning their eyes to put their confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. So as they face the enemy, they have confidence in such a great one who is their creator, who is their sustainer, and who has redeemed them by the blood of himself. He came not to be an angel, to save angels, but it behooved him to become like unto one of us, that we might be as his brethren, that we might be brought into the family of God, purchased by our kinsmen, the Son of God, who is the greatest and the most superior of all beings, who is very God. Don't look to the angels. The angels are 
are created. This one created the angels. But secondly, notice, and I, I think this is very important, and we'll see this borne out in the text, the Jews understood. If you turn with me to Acts 7 and the verse 53, the Jews understood that the law was given by the disposition of angels. They're at Mount Sinai. Stephen is there and he is giving an account before the council of Sanhedrin. And he says this, who have received the law by the disposition of angels. The law came by the disposition of angels. What does he mean? Well, if you turn to Deuteronomy 33 in the verse 2, I think we've seen this before in our studies of Exodus and also in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 33 in the verse 2, the Lord came from Sinai and rose up from Seir unto them. While you're turning there, I'll just remind you that Moses is bidding the people farewell. And he's reminding the people what happened there at Mount Sinai when the law was given. The Lord came from Sinai and rose up from Seir unto them. He shined forth from Mount Paran. And he came with ten thousands of saints. Now the Hebrew word there means messenger or angels. From his right hand went a fiery law for them. Another passage that makes this even more clear is Psalm 68 and the verse 17. We read, the chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of angels. The Lord is among them as in Sinai, in the holy place at Sinai. There were myriads of angels countless angels. Stephen affirms this. Moses affirms this. The psalmist affirms this. And you notice in the verse 18, very familiar words, thou hast ascended on high. Who was this? The Lord who was there. The Lord Jesus. Thou hast ascended on high. Thou hast left captivity captive. And thou hast received gifts for men. It's those familiar words, aren't they, in Ephesians 4. When he led captivity captive, he gave gifts unto men. Who was there at Sinai? Christ, with myriads of angels. And so you see, the Jew would be thinking, well, the law came by the ministration of the angels, and Moses was there, but they forget. Christ, who is superior to all the angels, was there. He came thundering, lightnings, flashings. These people were taken up with the angels. In fact, many of them worshipped angels, and people do today, sadly even. They're not to be worshipped. And many of them are wanting to go back from Christ, who is the fulfillment of the law, who is the end of the law for righteousness. And many of these Jews are, are wanting to go back. The law cannot save you, but Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. Yes, of course, we're still under the law, but for sanctification not for justification, not to be made right, but we have our righteousness in Christ. Now you notice that this theme continues on in the chapter 2. Notice in the verse 2 of Hebrews 2. For if the word, and here 
It's clear because he says, spoken by angels, and he's referring there to the law then, because we've just made that very clear. The law was given by the ministration of angels, for if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression that is of the law and disobedience that is to the law receive the just recompense of reward, how shall we, believers, escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord. When was it first spoken? Well, the law was given right from the beginning of creation. In fact, you can see it in Genesis. Man was under a covenant of works, and the Sabbath day was already introduced in the Garden of Eden. Yes, the Lord gave that seventh day, and he sanctified it, And the law was practiced long before Sinai. So you notice here in chapter 1, and then we're moving now to chapter 2, just some of these verses. What the apostle is doing is he's setting forth Christ's excellency and superiority over and against the angels. There's this contrast and a comparison that he is better than the angels. He is far superior. He is more than these. Now you come to this verse 2, How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Well, the word here in the Greek is the word amelia. It's used in the aorst tense here, and it means to relax. How shall we escape if we neglect, if we relax so great salvation? He's saying, don't forget these things. Now, what the aorst tense means, it's it's a verb typically denoting a simple occurrence of an action. And what he's saying here, when you look at the word here, escape, it's the word echo fugio. You you hear the word fugitive in there. That's where we get the word fugitive from. He's saying, how shall we escape? Now, of course, a Christian can never lose his salvation. It's utterly impossible. For whom Christ has died, he will never lose his salvation. Now, we know many times that the Lord Jesus Christ, in fact, certainly in the Sermon on the Mount, remember he addressed the disciples and he said, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. For it'd be better, he said, to enter into heaven with one eye, one arm, than to be cast into hellfire. Who was he addressing? He was addressing disciples. There are warnings to be heeded. Now, many of the commentators suggest this, and I think it's a very strong argument for this. What is going to happen in just a few years from now? A great judgment is going to come upon Jerusalem, isn't it? AD 70, didn't the Lord Jesus Christ warn about that? And what will happen as a consequence? You know that the city was practically starved to death, and many, many, were swept away. Remember how he said, pray that your flight shall not be on the Sabbath, and so on. Now, we know this from Scripture. Certainly in 1 Corinthians, remember how the Apostle Paul, he reminds the Christians there that if they do not discern the body of Christ, that God's judgment, not in terms of losing their salvation, but he says, this for this reason many sleep. Their lives were taken away. Judgment, a temporal sort of judgment came upon them. 
there was anger. And this is what happened in Jerusalem because many of the people had, this is why Christ wept, why he wept over Jerusalem. Because he knew this and he warned that this was going to come and certainly the apostle warns that there is going to be a great judgment. Now, let me just move a little bit further. Let me take it a step further. Notice in Hebrews 6, and I take my argument a little bit further here in Hebrews 6. In Hebrews 6, the Apostle Paul is first of all in the verses 1 to 6 is speaking about those who are not truly born again. They are not saved. And, and again, I must emphasize you cannot lose your salvation. And you cannot neglect a salvation that you don't have. So let me make the point here. Verse 4. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened, who have tasted of the heavenly gift, and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost, and have tasted the good word of God, and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh, and put him to an open shame. But notice, come down to the verse 9. He says, But beloved, we are persuaded better things of you, things that accompany salvation. Do you see the point? He's saying, we are persuaded better things of you. You are Christians. And so these warnings come. These warnings come to God's people. Believers, and I think we all agree with this, nobody can lose their salvation. And you cannot neglect a salvation you don't have. But this is a word of warning. God will come. And he certainly came upon the people of Jerusalem. And God's judgment came, my friends, just a few years after this upon Jerusalem. There were those also, as I said at Corinth, who were not discerning the body of Christ. But here in Hebrews 6, 9, but beloved, we are persuaded better things of you. He's writing to believers. Now again, taking the words of the Lord Jesus, if thy right eye causes thee to sin, pluck it out. Who is he speaking to? To believers. Is he saying you can be cast into hellfire? No, he says, my people heed my word. They listen to it and they obey it. The warnings are there for the believers. Again, I think this verse is often used in an evangelistic sense and that's not really correct. Because you cannot neglect a salvation you don't frankly have. God gives salvation, and he saves you, and he keeps you forever. Now, the word here is a warning to these Jews who have a tendency to go back and saying, look, God has given you everything in Christ. Don't turn back. Christ is better than the angels. He is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. Everything is in Christ. And God's judgment came, my friends, just a few years after this, upon Jerusalem. The threats of God are taken seriously by God's people. That's the point. If thy right eye cause thee to sin, pluck it out. 
And that is exactly what God's people do. They mortify. What did Paul say? I buffet my body, lest after I've preached to others, I'm a dokimos. That's it. He says, really, to these people here, do not let these things slip. And you know, this is our problem. What they needed to do was to keep high and proper views of Christ. Take your eyes off the angels. Take your eyes even, not off the law, not to neglect it, but fix your eyes upon him. He who is the captain of your salvation. He that is the creator of the world, who became man for your sakes, who upheld the universe while he was suffering, while he was dying, and then immediately went and sat down at the right hand of the majesty of God on high. Keep your eyes on him, not the angels. They held Moses in such great high esteem and awe. But friends, here is the one that fulfilled the law, that we would go to heaven. Don't turn back. Don't, don't let, don't relax this salvation. This is why sound doctrine, my dear friends, is absolutely vital to our lives as Christians. Absolutely. Never forget who Christ is. The problem today, you see, these deep studies of Christ are not valued in so many churches. They're not. Oh, this is just too theological for us. We, we, we don't want to be, you know, let's have something a little bit light and fluffy. No. I think the more we understand about Christ, and the more we appreciate of who he is, the more we'll value him. Don't let these things slip. Don't neglect, brethren, your salvation. You have such a great salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. My friends, there's nothing like it in the world. The salvation doesn't belong to the world. It's something God has given to his people. And it is to all that believe upon Christ. We preach that. We preach that in this church. But you see, the gospel is only for those who repent. You're not ready for the gospel until you repent. That's what Christ said. Repent, and then believe ye the gospel. And that's the order we must always preach in. Repentance toward God, and then faith in the Lord Jesus. And what he's saying is, look, we are persuaded better things of you, not like these people. And this whole epistle is to bring their minds back to who Christ is and never forget it. You have this. God has given it to you. And my friends, what God has given, he does not take away. It's a gift. The gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. And nothing will ever separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And I want you to know you cannot lose your salvation. And there are those, some that teach that you lose salvation in this world. You don't lose it. The issue is, are you saved? If you're saved, you'll hold on to these things. And you'll never let them go. 
You never let them slip. No. But you will value Christ in all that he is. See him there at Mount Sinai. The law is being given. The angels are there. It's his law. And then he comes into the world in the fullness of time, says Paul in Galatians 4.4, but when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made under the law. Why? To live out that law in his life and to earn for us a righteousness and to suffer in our stead and to become a curse for us under that law. That's why he did it, friends. In his love, in his grace, the incarnation is a tremendous thing. You know, in his life, as you look at his life, he magnified the law. And he made it honorable. He made it glorious. There was the Holy One his entire life. And you notice, being made so much better than the angels, and hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. What is his name? When Isaiah saw him in the temple, what did Isaiah say? He said, I saw the Lord high and lifted and mighty. And his name is holy, holy, holy. What does John say? John 12, 41. These things said Isaiah when he saw his glory and spake of him. Holy. What is the name of our Lord Jesus? He is the Holy One. He's God. Come to live for us and die for us. And in him, think of the names of Christ. There are literally hundreds of them, aren't there? In the word of God. And he has been given a name that is above every other name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. This one who has a glorious name, you know, he became accursed for us. He who knew no sin became sin for us. Psalm 2 verse 7, I will declare the decree the Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. Ask of me and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance. And that's what he's done. And where is he now? Well, we're told here that he has sat down at the majesty of God on high. And then when we turn to the book of the Revelation, chapter, chapter 5, just notice there, what is the name that he is being praised by in heaven? Verse 11, I, And I beheld and heard the voice, of many angels. The angels worship him. We're not to worship the angels. And I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain with power. He is receiving that praise from them now. Worthy is the Lamb. And my friends, this is how the Hebrew Jews were to think of him. With all of our suffering, he's worthy. He's worthy of all of our love, 
our praise, our adoration. Let us not let this salvation slip from our minds. Paul says we are persuaded better things of you. Don't let them slip. How gracious God is in giving his son. Let us never take our eyes off him. Well, I'm far more prepared for this evening, but I feel that that's enough for this evening, and may the Lord, I trust, give us something. It's not much application there, but all I would say, the, the general application is this, is never take your eyes off Christ. The trouble is we never have high enough views of him. Don't admire angels and men wonder with the angels in heaven what God has done in the sending of his dear and only begotten son who is heir to all things and who has given us so great salvation let us never let these things slip the things of Christ but let us stir our hearts to greater love greater devotion and service and we must preach to men that they must repent or perish. But they must repent before they can ever have this salvation. And when they have it, it'll never be lost. Because Christ secured it and purchased it. Purchased every soul that would ever believe upon them, upon him. That they will be taken to heaven. That's a wonderful promise, isn't it? We may fall, we may even as Peter. Think of it, Peter denied him. But the Lord will not deny his people. We may fall, we may even slumber, backslide, but the Lord will never forsake the one he has purchased at Calvary. They are safe in his arms, in his hands and in the Father's hands. But God's children will pluck out and they will gouge that darling sin and put it away. Well, may we not neglect anything, but may we run and may we, as the apostle exhorts them, lay aside every weight. That's what they need to do, and that's what we need to do. Sometimes you'll have the weight of this person telling you this about Christ, or worldly, or preaching that is not true to God's word. That's a weight that will lay aside anything that deviates from the truth. And that's what we want. We want the truth about Christ. I don't want the text to mean what I want it to mean. I want it to mean what it says it means. Because if I believe what it says it means, I know I will be kept by it. Very important. We have God to be our teacher. And we never take Christ from our eyes. Never take our gaze off him. Let us keep our eyes upon him and all the salvation that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. For his glory we pray. Amen.